Welcome back to Settle the Far. This is Corey Garvey, your host, coming to you live from England. The show where I drop into some crazy stories of people who have pushed themselves outside their comfort zone. We'll tell you a little bit about my own travels and tribulations. Today, I'm speaking with a close friend, Kyle, about his understanding and history with indie hacking. If you don't know about indie hacking, it's the idea of setting up your own business that can become a secondary source of income and maybe a primary source of income, maybe a passive source of income. We get into a bunch of the uh, understandings and, and common patterns that we've seen, just some ideas on how indie hacking is best done. Um, I think both of us have been tracking IndieHackers.com about since it started and hearing about people and the things that they've done um, to get a business going and make a serious amount of money, $5 million a year, totally on their own, living wherever they want. It's inspiring. It's, I mean, it's what, who doesn't want a situation like that? So worth listening to, especially if you're somebody who's thought about starting a business in the past. Um, and if you if you haven't seen it, check out IndieHackers.com. It's more than just tech businesses and, and software businesses. There's people who do, you know, uh, somebody's got got this this thing that they, I think it's a podcast, um, where they talk all about the businesses they've created that are not on the computer. Um, they're like sweaty man businesses or something. Things like mowing people's lawns or cleaning houses or whatever it might be. So check it out. And listen to this episode. I think the conversation with Kyle, we get into a lot of the specifics. The other thing I want to talk about is the Yeezus documentary, Kanye West, making noise all over the place. Maybe everything that's going on in the real world is just a, a little press op for his um, his documentary, but it needs no introduction. Kanye's the man. Um, as far as being around big time artists in my lifetime, I feel like Kanye is one of the biggest. He is a bit out there in some of the things that he does in, in real life, but the guy dropped some of the best music of the 21st century and rewrote the game. You know, he changed things from a place of money and cars and women to reality, and he dropped it with clever lines, sweet beats, awesome samples. And this documentary gets into all those different things. Um, you know, you see him at 20 years old where he hasn't yet made the move from being a producer to being a rapper. And I thought that when he sort of got in touch with Jay-Z and Rockefeller, he was just brought in and it was like, okay, this guy's going to be big, whatever. And I didn't realize how much of a, of a hustle it was for him. Um, I think they probably play up the hustle a little bit, but damn, uh, he, he just getting all these different people on his side was not an easy thing for him to do. The big thing that comes out of this is just how raw and, and personal all this stuff is for him when he's coming up, you know, he, he's a producer to start and he makes some of the biggest beats in the world. He, he, he does a lot of uh, the blueprint, um, which is like obviously huge. One of Jay-Z's biggest albums. H to the Izzo, he made that beat. But it's when he's trying to become a rapper himself um, where he really has to grow into his own confidence and like have confidence that, okay, I should be the one headlining i should be the one that everybody knows and he has to fight for for time and for the ability to be a rapper um he starts digging into what's driving him in so many of his interviews and so many of his conversations that they have on tape like they have a ton of this awesome tape so you're watching the mute the the songs kind of get created and him playing through different songs and the the verses he has so far and stuff like that and then you're seeing him talk about what the drive is like and how his music's going to hit everything. I'm going to hit the world, you know? It's going to it's going to be a big deal. And nobody knows it. You know, he's he's a face in the crowd in a lot of the the crowds that he's in. And there's a couple moments. There's one where he's talking and he's he's in the car getting interviewed and he kind of just says, you know, 
your American dream might be where I'm at right now as a producer making good money, whatever. But that's not my American dream. My American dream is bigger. You know, I'm going to be in, in the stars. And it's that kind of attitude, I think, that only comes from or, or seems to so frequently come from younger people and that we lose as time goes on. And like, maybe it's just becoming accustomed to how things are, but he he doesn't plan on being in the music business. He doesn't plan on, you know, I'm going to um, produce for these people and those people. He knows that he's going for the biggest thing. He's going to be the artist. He's going to be the one writing the lines. He's going to be the one doing the creative work. And just in all aspects of life, I see this frequently, I think, where people have this view, I want to be in movies. I want to be in in tech or something. But, you know, how often are we saying, I want to be the person that builds the entire website? You know, and I'm talking about once we become 25, 30 years old, that like, I'm going to be the person who, who creates the commercial. I'm not going to be the person that like manages accounting for some commercial, um, you know, production company. No, I'm going to be the director in there. I'm going to be the one that writes the lines in the movie. You know, I'm going to be, I'm going to write scripts. I'm not just going to be another extra on the thing. And damn, if he has this, like he's talking about just, um, just his entire view on, on how he comes in at a different angle that other people haven't heard yet. And it's so fresh. Um, it's so good to hear it alongside the music that we know and the music and the songs you've already heard. Um, there's a point where he's in Rockefeller and he's just putting his CD on all over the place and he's got it on for this marketing assistant and she's sitting at her desk straight faced while he's sort of rapping over his own music coming out and this point all falls down and he gets to the line where he's like, she couldn't afford a car. So she named her daughter Alexis. And you can just see it's the one time the girl's, eye, you know, her eyebrows go up like, what was that? And Man, Kanye just threads together so many different social points in these lines in a way that that hits at like not just this is fresh and I can bounce to it, but man, this is this is identifying reality for me. You know, this is identifying the struggle in in a real way that shows that like the struggle isn't always about uh, trying to get a girl and not being able to, or, um, you know, guns and, and, and gang wars and shit like that. Like the reality is that the struggle is the way we get pulled in different directions and the way black people get pulled in different directions in a place like Chicago toward selling drugs, toward crime and the way that they see how this situation has come about. And man, like, it's just so fresh seeing a 20-year-old Kanye running around trying to get himself to become something. I haven't seen, um, you know, as good of a documentary because it's so hard for people to get that kind of footage when when, when there's really young people. You know, when, when someone like Kanye is really young, you see something like Jordan and a lot of that is uh, is from when he was older. And this is just such good footage from an artist that, I've watched and listened to become a global star and that I personally listen to his albums all the time. Watching him make that. Oh God, too good, too good, too good. So check it out. Kanye West's new documentary, Yeezus. Uh, what else we got on? What else we got on for the week? It's been a busy week for me work-wise. That's why you're not hearing this until Friday. I don't want to dwell on that anymore. Instead, Let's get to the conversation. This is me and Kyle talking about indie hacking, all the little ins and outs, all our history with them, who's done well, how much money they're making, all that good stuff. Check out IndieHackers.com, a really good website, and enjoy the show. Here's my chat with Kyle. Hey, buddy. How's it going? Thanks for coming on. Garf, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, I have a lot of things that we could talk about. If you weren't aware, I'm in the market for a co-host. So depending on how enjoyable this is on your side and what the reactions are from the crowd, you might be in line. Um, 
the I don't know thing I really want in my future, but we'll see. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. I'm not sure that all the big podcasters out there saw it in their feature. And maybe it'll be a nice little revenue stream for you at some point. It's true. It's a good point. Speaking of revenue streams, I I want to talk about indie hackers and sort of the perceptions of indie hackers. So the first thing is, can you give your thoughts on what what is indie hacking based on indiehackers.com and just sort of a quick definition and really how does it differ from passive income? I think a lot of people think or hear about this topic and they view it as this potential side income stream that will allow them to quit their job and not have to do anything, do yoga all day, and then the money just rolls in. So what is indie hacking? And in your mind, how does this differ from passive income? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, For people who aren't familiar with uh, indie hackers, it's a site that was created a couple of years ago. um, Indiehackers.com created by someone uh, in Cortland, uh, I forget his, actually Cortland last Allen. name. Yeah, Cort- Cortland Allen. And you went to school with him, right, Corey? Um, yeah. But uh, essentially created a whole community around what's called, you know, indie hackers. So, you know, allows people to go on and kind of share what they're working on, um, ask questions, you know, kind of that building an indie hacker uh, business. Um, you can see kind of the success the failures the challenges of other people out there um so indie indie hacking and you know in my mind it's it's you know working on something you know kind of small on the side solo where you're not going that traditional route of maybe you know raising venture capital or trying to create a big company it's something that you know some is more or less manageable that you can do kind of by yourself, say solo indie, um, you know, it's, it's uh, creating, you know, maybe a product like a, you know, software with the goal of, um, for at least for most, you know, indie hackers is to gain a, you know, financial freedom, right? So kind of not have to be working for, quote unquote, the man anymore, right? And you're able to kind of do what you want when you want. And, uh, you know, on, on your own terms. Um, quickly before, before getting into just a clarification, you know, I think indie hacking makes it sound very software, you know, dark room sweatshirt on hacking away at some code. Um, how true is that? Yeah, that's, I, I, that's a good point. It's, it's not, it's not hacking kind of your, your traditional sense of what people think of hacking, like hacking the computer. It's more of hacking you know, I'd say hacking the your the traditional way of, of life and the way of, you know, how you're supposed to go and have a job and work for 30 years and then, you know, put in your time and then retire. You're kind of hacking that lifestyle to, you know, create your own sense of financial freedom. So I, I think that's kind of where that hacking fits in. Sure. It's funny. I also think about it like a, like t- trying to chop down a tree, like hacking away at it. But maybe yeah. that's why I haven't been quite the uh, quite the indie hacking success. So you kind of mentioned the definition there. Um, do you think that there's a perception that this is a way to create passive income? And in your understanding of quality passive income streams, does this fit into one of them for you, or do you view it differently? Um, I think for some people, it <clears throat> they believe that it's a, a way to create passive income, um, and I think it certainly can be. But I don't, I don't necessarily think it's, you know, it, it always kind of ends up with if passive income for indie hackers. I, I think a lot of times people hope for you know passive income, but ends up being you know more time than they're their, you know, job that they had beforehand, right? And more commitment, right? Because you're never really off, right? There's never a vacation. Um, so, 
I, you know, I think it, what it does give you kind of back to my point is it will give you that ultimate freedom, right? For, you know, okay, I choose to work on this, right? I don't have to work on this. Um, but putting in enough, enough time, the goal is to eventually have some sort of business that, you know, can generate that passive income. Um, but it, it's really, you know, in my mind, it's just kind of one, one form of passive income, right? So same with like, you know, dividends, right? For investments you put in, like that's passive income as well. Um, so, you know, I think it can ultimately, if you do it right and you have the right business, it can generate passive income um, and you have the right systems in place. And, you know, my goal personally is to have, you know, a passive income stream. So uh, through indie hacking. Okay. So I, I think that there's a, I'd love to hear some stories about this and specific examples because looking through this website and reading through it, being in the community for a while, it's clear that, as you said, there's there's the ability to get to that point of not having to put in a ton of work every day and still having money coming in, but it takes some some work to get there. And there's that um, that control and ownership that I think is a big point of it, right? Like you have freedom because by working alone and not taking capital, venture capital, not taking investment, you can control um, where the revenue goes, how much of it you want to reinvest, how much, what the expectations are of the company to grow and things like that. Um, let's get to the good stuff. Is there a single indie hacking company story that pops to your mind when you think, um, these, these, this guy crushed it. This woman yeah. crushed it. I mean, I, I think the, probably the most, you know, uh, well-known example. And I was actually listening to the indie hackers podcast the other day with, uh, Cortland was interviewing him as this guy, Peter levels. Um, so indie hacker Cortland mentioned in that podcast that indie hackers was actually created, you know, because of, of Peter Levels, like that's kind of what inspired him. So he you know, looked at him as kind of one of the people who inspired this in, entire kind of indie hacking movement. Um, so it's this guy, I remember, you know, when he was tweeting about this, like eight years or so ago, when he, you know, really started out, he was, um, you know, starting to, you know, build, he had a goal to build, you know, 12 different products in 12 months. And he was transparent about the entire thing, you know, tweeted about every product each month. Um, his rules were, you know, by the end of the month, he had to complete it. And the next month he had to start, you know, the new, the new project or new product or, or whatever it was, you know, and he had to be strict about that. Um, this guy is someone who just always worked by himself and you know never took on any sort of outside capital um now fast forward to today he's doing around three to five million dollars a year just solo all by himself completely transparent about all his numbers he has he said he started over 70 or so um companies over the you know past wow. eight years only around three or five of them, I think, are actually making any money, but they're making, you know, a ton of money, right? So yeah. to be able to generate that that type of, um, you know, revenue with one person is pretty crazy. And, you know, the cool thing is he's just honest and transparent about everything, right? He shows the numbers. He shows how he's doing it. He shows, um, he shows you know, the... the um, you know, how he's, how he's built it, you know, how he's taken a simple approach. And, you know, I, you look at him and kind of his lifestyle and, and what he does, like he's traveling around the world. And, you know, I don't, I don't know necessarily, like, I want to have like that backpacker lifestyle, but just the sense of freedom that he has, I think is pretty, you know, inspiring. Um, so I've, yeah, I've followed him a bit and he, I think his um, ability to jump on ideas when he sees them and feels that there's a market for something is what is really, I'd say inspiring, but almost what I envy because you and I will talk about things um, 
but we we both know that having a full-time job that that's needed to pay the bills it's hard to put all of my energy toward something i notice in the market and mm-hmm. uh it ends up becoming mornings or or evenings but it's, it's just not enough you need to really drive or it may be but um he has taken on certain things that have allowed him to really drive drive home ideas. So I'm looking at his 12 startups in 12 months. I've gone through this in the past. I know that you just mentioned he started a lot of companies, but a small number of them have really provided the value. Um, I want to get into two, two of his ideas, and if you have an uh, understanding of them or not, let me know. But I know that two of them he started. One of them was called Go Fucking Do It. And that was the second startup that he created. And then the fourth one he created, the fourth month, was Nomad List. Mm-hmm. And the first one, Go Fucking Do It, is just a very simple um, a very simple way in which he asked people to put their credit card in, commit to a goal that they wanted to reach, and a certain amount of money. And then if it wasn't going to happen, that money got sent to him i think i think right to his bank account like i think he was pretty open about that too or maybe going to a charity but i actually think it was going to him and it was quite successful because people have a lot of goals and they need this sort of social pressure financial pressure or something what do you think that sort of project teaches someone like him and and you know, it seems like that, my understanding, that's not one of the three or four that's continuing to make him money. So is it worth working on projects like that, that are small and simple? And what type of value does someone get from seeing that, okay, I can get a couple hundred people doing this, but there's no real long-term path? Um, <clears throat> I, I think there is value if you're trying to, you know, build a a following like he was, right? So it gets, you know, more people onto this kind of, you know, movement that he's, you know, almost created. Um, So yes, maybe that one particular project and it ended up being one of the ones that survived, but probably created enough buzz, probably got him a couple more, you know, thousand followers. So it's just kind of building that snowball. Um, So if you're, you're trying to build up kind of a, you know, a name for yourself, um, you know, following, I think it is worth it to do kind of those, you know, smaller projects that people think are cool and, you know, kind of builds you a little more credibility around a a particular area, which, you know, his is all around, you know, remote indie working. um, And, you know, he's generated a a huge following there. And, you know, a lot of his businesses um, that have been successful so that, you know, popular ones you mentioned, so uh, Nomad List, right? I think you mentioned, and then there's Remote, you know, OK, which is a remote job board. Then he's created another one recently called Rebase, which allows people to uh, allows people to move to um, to Portugal. So essentially, he can, you know, follow or you can fill out a form, and you know, it helps kind of automate the process of um, you know moving over to Portugal, and it connects you with uh, you know some lawyers over there and whatnot. <clears throat> But all of those businesses are successful, um, you know, I think because it's they're catered to his following. Right. So he has that like instant, you know, distribution channel now where he's able to, you know, show these these uh, products to people who are very passionate about you know, working remotely and, you know, traveling and you know living remotely. And and, uh, you know, I, I think those the 70 that have failed or 65 that have failed you know, I I think we're probably pretty catered around that area too. And maybe they're not making any money, but, you know, they helped kind of build up that following of, you know, whatever he has hundreds of thousands or millions of followers now. Yeah. So two, the two, two of them that you mentioned, um, Nomad List and Remote OK, were part of these 12 startups that he created in 12 months. And to most people, it seems crazy to do all of that to, especially Mm -hmm. if two of those end up becoming these giant money streams. Um, and the one I mentioned is very confined. There's not a lot of functionality in it. It's like, okay, set up a credit card thing. 
you can understand how somebody maybe can do that in one month. But if you go to Nomad List now, it's a gigantic website and there's a, there's a lot of capability that can come from it. Maybe not gigantic, but there's a lot that you can do. And Remote OK was happening months later. And the understanding is that he finished these by the end of the month. So um, can you say something about the process that he went through of creating 12 and now creating 70 and there being um, a set number of features within that and how how that's a, a good way or a bad way to take on building an indie hacking project, like having this set, set amount of features, having a set amount of time. Um, why not, if he saw Nomad List was doing well, drop the plans for the rest of it and continue going? Or, um, you know, why even decide to do 12 in 12 months? What's the advantage of, of that? Um, <clears throat> you know, I, honestly, I, I think that I don't really know, you know, kind of what his mindset was when he initially started out the 12 in 12 months. Sure. But, you know, I, I think it's about giving yourself a a goal of, of doing this and, you know, being open to trying different, um, you know, different ideas and committing to it. Right. So if you know you can, you know, kind of put a stake in the ground and make a commitment and following through with that, I think that gives, you know, yourself a lot of confidence on your ability to, um your ability to kind of build and, and, uh, create things in, in, uh, in the world. So I, I think for him that, that the 12 and 12 months, um, sticking to that and getting that confidence and, and, uh, kind of putting himself out there was maybe more important than just, you know, sticking with one for the, for the month and seeing it through. Cause maybe his, you know, ultimate goal was they continue to build right. And, and continue to create yeah. as he has like eight years later. Um, is, you know, as far as the mindset of how do I get something done in, in one month, I think you had a, a question around there. I, you know, I, you have to be focused as far as what you're going to create, right? So it can't be everything and, and anything, right? I, it has to be, you know, something very specific and you have to have some clear, you know, goals as far as the product that you're going to build or the, you know, project that you're going to complete. Um, Nomad List, I'm sure he's added a whole bunch of features over the eight years. I'm sure what it looked like after that one month isn't anywhere near what it is today. I'm sure there's screenshots you get, can go and check it out. Um, so you have to be very focused, right, to get something done in, in uh, one month. So whether it's working on, you know, a book or, uh, you know, a podcast or whatever, right? Like, what are, you, what are you trying to get done in that one month that you can achieve and and how do you show yourself that you're making progress every day and, you know, move past kind of these, these hurdles that you're going to, you're going to get through and not let it suck up, you know, 20% of your time, which right is oh, only a week. So. Yeah. Um, what are some of the, what's an idea that you can think of or, or something that people have worked on that somebody's worked on that is not software related, that has been sort of a successful indie hacking project? Yeah, actually, for you know, even my uh, have this idea of uh, this this guy is this company that I was actually going to use for my my own day job. He has a it's called a, a productized service, and um, just a little insight on that. So, a productized service is you know something where you're offering a service, you're putting in you know you know people, man hours, you know woman hours, whatever, on doing something for someone else. When it becomes productized, it's very repeatable, right? So you're you're performing the same sort of service over and over again. It's not like you have to reinvent the wheel each time. So, um, you know, it, it, I'll just jump into this example. So this uh, this guy's site is called uh, Design Joy. Um, he has a productized service for offering design services. Um, he charges. It's like it's like $2,900 or, you know, almost three grand a, a month um, that you're paying on a reoccurring basis for unlimited design services. And, you know, what, what you do, like how the service is productized is, you know, he has a, a set process for how you actually request those design services. Um, and which I actually didn't know I had a meeting with him and, you know, it, it's uh Typically, when you're you're requesting design services from a designer, 
you know, you have a bunch of meetings, you tell them what you want, you go back on another meetings and you back and forth. And, you know, it, it takes a lot of time for, you know, the designer for him, he doesn't really do any meetings, right? So he has a Trello board and clients can create a, you know, requests through the Trello board and he'll get them done in, you know, two to three days. So, you know, if you're a very good designer, which he is, right, you can kind of crank those out and be working on multiple projects at once. He's doing, I think, uh, last I saw Indie Hackers update from him was, you know, mid-2021 and he was doing like $900,000 a year just by himself with these wow. uh, productized service. So, you know, it's he's literally just acting as a designer, right? With Maybe he'd work for, say, uh, if he was working for a company and work, I think he only works nine to five or, you know, regular hours. If he was working for another company as a designer, he'd be working and probably making, I don't know, one to $200,000, right? That's kind of the typical kind of, uh, comp for a designer um but he's built this thing up by himself and you know can kind of work on his own terms um still his clients right but he's making you know five to ten times that amount yeah so. yeah that's cool it it makes me think of all the ways that he is um getting money back from that one to 200,000 that he was being, he would be paid elsewhere. And I saw a video this week about, it was an economist, economy professor, economics professor talking to a class and essentially telling the class, listen, you're never going to be paid your worth because your worth is above, um, you're going to be paid a certain amount and you're going to produce more than that. And the, the bit in between what you're actually producing and what you're paid is the surplus that the business gets to sell off and that they make for yeah. the company, for the leadership or whatever. And by going into indie hacking, someone like this can actually bring that surplus back. But then, as you mentioned, there's these administrative tasks that happen, especially when you have a larger company or you just don't have, you're not going in able to, build the structure for how the designer is going to interact with all the different teams or the clients or something like that. And by creating that structure himself, he can probably be more productive, do more design. Yeah, rather than Absolutely. I mean, we both work for big companies, right? Like the, the amount of time that gets taken, you know, by doing by doing tasks that just don't really add any sort of value at the end, end of the day, it's an enormous amount, right? So like meetings after meetings where, you know, you're just kind of maybe discussing the same thing and not really moving forward, not making any decisions. Like it just sucks up so much time. So if you can yeah. cut all that out, I mean, you really can just be constantly adding, adding value on, on your own time. How many of the indie hacking projects are, um, are able to do something like this and are very, maybe a better way to ask this um is there a theme that you've seen of the types of projects that people are taking on or or the 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 niche that they're taking on within um whatever industry it is uh or or maybe one that might be commonly coming up as okay this is a successful pattern in people who are creating indie hacking businesses um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I think that, you know, like you have seen, have seen different ideas and all sorts of businesses. Right. And, and at first, you know, I, I had thought it, all right, well, it has to be a SaaS business, right? It, like it has to be some software that's reoccurring and, yeah. you know, that's what's, that's what the, the goal is, right? Like that's how people do this, but like, there's just so many different examples of people you know, creating like ebooks or selling, you know, uh, templates or, you know, um, you know, yeah, services. So one guy and, who, you know, he gets paints, paintings outsourced to China and like, you know, people send him a photograph and he gets it outsourced and brings it back. It's like, yeah, I mean, you're just solving, solving just like you know, needs in the 
in the world, right? And like that's there, there's just infinite amount of different needs, right? That you know someone can just step in there and create something, you know, on their their you know own own terms and on their own uh, in their own way, and then you know it can become successful. I think that's why like the creator economy is something that's just becoming huge now, especially with you know the whole kind of COVID thing. I feel like everyone's becoming um, you know, a maker and creator and creating kind of what they're passionate about and what they feel there's a, a need for in the world. And just the amount of tools that you can, you have at your disposal today, um, w whether it's, you know, being able to reach an audience via, you know, Twitter or Instagram or, you know, TikTok or whatever, you know, social media uh, channel out there, or, you know, being able to, you know, automate your uh, messaging, with, um, you know, with your audience via, you know, email or text message or, you know, creating software, right? Like all this is something that can be done by just one person. It doesn't have to yeah. have a team where you have a, you know, you have your developers, you have your marketing team, you have your sales team. Like I, you know, I know we've talked a lot about this, but you know, like you, you, you can like go ahead and create a whole like marketing sequence and everything just all by yourself. And it, it's just, it's a pretty, pretty incredible. Um, but, you know, to, to go back to your question of, you know, how people are doing this today and like within a maybe particular, um, particular market of the, the, uh, you know, indie hackers, I'll dive into one that, you know, I do know well, which is the software one. Um, you see a lot of indie hackers who are um, taking businesses that are are proven out there, um, businesses like say um, project management software or um, bug tracking software or you know CRM software, something where there's these massive companies out there that are making you know billions of dollars and they're solving. The, solving the exact same problem, but, but for a very particular audience, right? Or a particular market. So, you know, building a project management software for, you know, photographers, right? Because they're able to solve it that much better for photographers versus, you know, something like a um, Asana, for example, right? They just can't do that well because they're just so broad and the set of features that they have to build because they're solving it for so many different use cases that they're never going to solve one particular, you know, verticals problem that well. So you'll see a lot of indie hackers kind of um, verticalize software for one particular uh, niche. Um, I think going, so. hearing about that, when, when I see, um, when I've seen some of these businesses, my first worry as a developer or someone who might want to sink a lot of time into this because Oftentimes, especially in the beginning, you know, you're not getting any money for this. You have to put up the investment of your time or paying for some services that are going to help you build um, an MVP to do this. My worry is that there's no way I can build all the features Asana has. And the, the first example is going to be so much less uh, impressive that why would a photographer use it? Um, it sounds like there's a, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like there's a, um, this value from, from all those tools that are out there right now that make it, make an indie hacker capable of creating an MVP that's actually not pure garbage and reaches that threshold of like, okay, this is a good enough project management tool for a photographer. And based on the fact that I've incorporated the, um, specifics for the photographer how what camera they're using you know setting up their lighting things like that things that asana would never incorporate um that i might actually be able to build this like do you do you have that fear going or, or just like thinking about ideas that okay i'm not gonna be able to build at least a base level that's any good um how do you think about that yeah i i <clears throat> I certainly think that's a challenge and, you know, something I personally struggle with is like, okay, well, how is it going to be anywhere near as good as, you know, Asana? But if you take a step back and you look at, 
you know, kind of a t- typical usage amongst, um, you know, products out there. Most users aren't using anywhere, you know, near the amount of features that they have. So, you know, they're probably using a good, you know, core set of the maybe 30 to 40% of the, you know, features that a, a product does have. The other ones are just, you know, there to account for maybe, um, you know, something that, you know, helps kind of maybe set them apart from other companies that people think that they need, but they actually don't really need. So um, let's then, you know, take away 70% of the other features. So you're stuck with kind of a core set of project management features, right? So creating a project, creating tasks. So now you're checking the box as far as like, okay, here's what, um, you know, fundamentally makes a project management uh, software, project management software. But then you're adding on for that particular, you know, market or, you know, niche is the, is what they really need, right? And, you know, if you're creating something that a particular user group really cares about, you know, they're not going to look at, okay, well, what is it missing from the other 70% because you're solving their exact problem, right? Um, And it's all about, you know, I I think at the end of the day, I'm a, I'm a, big believer in this, you know, whole like jobs to be done framework with creating software, like people create software to, you know, solve a, a, or do a particular job. Um, So what job are you doing for, you know, your users, right? It's not, it's not trying to do everything, right? Like say Asana is doing it. They're hiring you to do some specific job. So, you know, having for photographers, right, being able to select the different, you know, cameras that you um, are using, right? Or I don't know. I don't really know photographers all that well, right? That's not really my area, but you know, there's, there's something that will allow you to, you know, do the job for them that you're reducing that, um, you know, friction in their job so they can get it done a lot easier. Um, so I think that's kind of the lens you have to take, not, Oh, what am I missing from, you know, this big behemoth that has all these features? It's, you know, what job are these particular users doing that, you know, my software can, solve a lot better than, um, you know, the saunas of the world. Going toward more practical aspects of implementing something like this. Um, I know you've put together a few projects at different times and I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure have, uh, (laughs) hopes of like maybe more financially successful ones in the future. What is the, what, what, you know, from a sober point of view where you're not in the work and like getting after it and deciding what to do day by day, but taking a step back, what is the right way? If you see an idea like this, you see a job that is being done, somebody's hacking it together somehow as the user and they're using Asana and they're frustrated because they have to use like the milestone tool to put in, you know, when the sun is, rising and setting because they're a photographer and they need that and you're like oh man there's this huge need for photographers and project management um what's the structure for building something like this and i'm wondering mostly about like timelines and deliverables and how this turns into something can turn into something that is not successful like if you were just looking at it objectively how should somebody be thinking about that you know, I, I, it, it, it really, your, your biggest risk often is, you know, are you going to be able to, you get the, it, well, it, it really kind of depends on your skill set as far as what your risks are, right? So if you were more of a, um, you know, if you're more of a, say someone who's already photographer, you have a bunch of photographer friends and, you know, you're kind of in with that community and you know, there's a huge demand and you can kind of, you know, instantly get, you know, a hundred thousand, you know, hundred or a thousand, whatever photographers to, you know, use your software, your risk is more on like, how do I build this? Right. And not spending like, you know, tons of money and wasting all this time because you don't know how to build something. Um, you know, my problem is the reverse. And, you know, I find a, a, a lot of indie hackers problems from what I've seen are, is the reverse is where they can build something, but they, you know, aren't able to, you know, kind of gain the distribution to the, you know, uh, market or find those customers. Um, so, you know, the best way, 
or you know the most efficient way to go about it is if you are a builder is to you know try to find those customers beforehand right reach out to them start talking with them um you know put up a a simple landing page for what your product is supposed to do and start collecting email addresses even you know even ask them to maybe uh, pre-order your your software right if they're interested in it and give them some sort of you know heavy discount they can be an early tester um and you know get that validation from the market that there is an actual problem here and people are willing to purchase it you know i i, I i'd say that's probably the best way to to tackle it and de-risk your um you know, your business and really your time, right? Is that you're not putting in six months a year and building something that just isn't going to, isn't going to get anywhere. Um, you know, I've spent so much time and you know, this right on, on building things. And, you know, I, since I can build these things, I think it's a blessing and a curse, right? Because I go to what I know, which is, you know, building the software. And I think that's fun and I get excited about it. Then, you know, I can build it very quickly, but then it's like, all right, well, how am I actually going to go get users for it? It's like, all right, well, I don't know. Let's try this thing, this thing. Uh, this isn't working. Yeah. All right. Uh, onto some new idea. And, you know, that's yeah. gets more exciting. But if you had a set of users that you focus on from the beginning, um, that that just, you know, eliminates that whole, you know, rest that, okay, I'm going to spend months building something and they're not going to be there at the end. Sure. I When I was in Entrepreneur First over here, one of the biggest takeaways I had was in trying to build a more traditional VC backed startup um, that was really pushing us was sell it now, like go sell this idea and selling it is not having somebody commit to it verbally. It's like, get them to put their, their signature on paper that once the product arrives on their doorstep, their, the money gets sent or, get them to pay and maybe hold that money in some sort of um, some sort of account or have a, a commitment that they'll pay you because nothing that's the goal right is like if they're going to be if they're actually if they actually want your product it's how much are they willing to spend for that product um, and if they just say that they want it it doesn't it doesn't mean anything you can say a lot of things right so Yep. Um, this is where I fail too. And I don't know that I've, uh, it, it's that strange internal side. Like you just mentioned, it's fun to get up and work on a project that you think has value. And it's scary to actually bring your idea to somebody and have them tell, you, no, this is not something we want to pay you for. Even if it's only an idea that you came up with, like having beers with some friends, you don't want somebody to shoot it down. But in reality, the best thing you can do is make that happen and then continue to talk to them and understand, okay, I thought you had this problem. Why doesn't my solution solve that problem that I thought you had? Um, and that yep. iteration from everything I've heard from super successful companies to indie hackers is a necessary aspect of building something out. You can't just, no, no one's sitting there and it's like, oh, I got an idea. They put it together and then boom, it just sells like, like hotcakes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. Yeah, there's this great book on this topic. Uh, I'm not sure if you read it. I don't think we've talked about it in the past. Called the Mom Test. Yeah, it's like, yeah, if you like ask your, you know, mom, you know, feedback on an idea, she's going to be like, "Oh, that's you know, great, honey. What a great idea!" I'm like, "You're taking that as validation. That's not validation, right?" Like, and you know, using the mom, right? Because that's the obvious example. But like using your friends and everything, they're going to tell you kind of what they want to hear. But you have to really go a couple levels deeper, right? And like ask, you know, ask how the problem is, you know, how, how they're, uh, you know, doing something today. And, you know, if the answer is like, oh, well, it's, you know, so painful and like, okay, well, how have you tried to solve this in the past? And like, you know, there's different answers that can be like indicators that they would pay for something like, you know, oh, well, I haven't really tried anything. It's such a, it's such a problem, but okay, well, I haven't, how have you tried to solve it? Oh, I haven't really tried any other way. Okay, well, they're probably not going to pay anything, right? Yeah. Oh, well, I've tried all this other solutions and I've wasted, you know, $500 on this gimmick. Oh, well, now people are actually willing yeah. to put out money. There is, you know, something that people are going to pay for there. So 
yeah. I've heard it called a hair. You want to find hair on fire problems where if your hair is on fire, you will literally use anything to put it out. Like you'll find a cinder block that's next to you and just start hitting your head with it because you don't want your hair on fire. So um, when you can find those problems and someone's already shown that they're paying for it, there's obviously a market there. What is, what is, what are, getting into the, the next steps? Like what are some, what are some thoughts on products to build anything on your mind right now? That you're willing to share any juicy <laughs> industries that need um that need some some new products well back to you know my you know i've been working on this note do thing you've been uh you know yep. one of one of two loyal uh beta testers <laughs> that one i mean honestly i just i i started note do is just like a personal kind of notes app i, I started doing that because i I just thought it was fun and I actually enjoyed doing it. I don't, I don't know if that's really going to be the next big thing, but I enjoyed kind of building something I would use for once, which, you know, I haven't done really ever, I think, since I've kind of learned to build software. I've never built anything that, you know, I would use. Um, but, you know, back to, back to the challenge that I've always had is this, you know, uh, how do you, how do you, uh, have distribution for what you create and, and have something that, you know, can sell to a whole bunch of, you know, people that, you know, you have access to. I've been thinking about where, you know, I have some sort of kind of difference in the you know, market or what's kind of unique to me um, and where there's a big need out there. I think that there's a, or I know there's enormous amount of people that want to know how to code, right? Like there's millions of people that just are looking to, you know, how do I learn how to code? And I think that's something that I did go through and was able to pick up um, and spent a lot of time doing, right? And I think I'll resonate with people out there that, you know, don't have that kind of computer science background or that, you know, very technical background um, who want to learn how to code. So I've been thinking about and brainstorming on, you know, more of a info product, bringing us back to, you know, our early info product days when, oh, yeah. you know, how to, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, like a learning to code type uh, info product and, you know, kind of reaching those people. And I, I responded to some comment the other day on Indie Hackers and someone was like, you know, I want to learn how to code really fast. I'm like, oh, well, I actually can provide some value to this person. Right. And like, you know, gave him a comment and like even Cortland jumped on there and like, Oh, I agree with Kyle. This is a, I was going to say exactly what he said. So I'm like, all right, well, you know, I could probably help out a lot of people here as far as, uh, you know, the learning to code journey. I I found, found, uh, you know, over the years kind of where there's the pitfalls and hurdles. So that's something I've been thinking about. And, what I, I think it does is it gets me away from just jumping into writing software, which I often do, and it gets me into writing. And I, I, not so much writing on the, when I talk about writing, it's yes, there's going to be writing like an info product, but more on writing. Um, Cause this is going to be like a, more of a marketing effort with like, you know, here's like a blog post, a tor- tutorial on how to do things. Um, so it will force me to focus on more of the, the marketing activities. So, who do you think the users uh, like? What's the what is the um? Why is there a need for these users to do this? And I ask because it seems like knowing how to code, there's a lot of levels of that. And mm-hmm. are you thinking this is a way to help them navigate all of the information out there? How to get to a specific level where they can write python or write java or something like what is your um uh, yeah, yeah I, the, I yeah so i mean there's and why i think you're asking that is because like what's different right because there's a million like how to code things out there right yeah sure i think what what is what's missing is like how to how to code to build something right like not like learn the basics of like here's the syntax and all that i, yeah. I there's so many different tutorials of like 101s and that's where I think people get lost, right? It's like, well, how does this fit together to actually like build something that I want to build, like a cool, you know, website or mobile app? Yeah. And 
you know, a, a lot of people get in, or want to learn coding so they can build those things. And, you know, they, they can't, they, they just drop off because it's like, all right, well now, you know, I'm learning how to create a, a class, but how does that, you know, help me, you know, create a, you know, something that accepts data from some user and then does something cool and shoots out an email or something, right? So that's where I'd like to um, tie it all together for prospective creators who want to know how to code is, you know, here's how you can build something, right? Like here's code that actually is a web application, right? And like, here's how you maybe can you know, do a for loop, right, to do something with inside this web application that like, you know, has some sort of feature for your end user. So it's like putting, putting the basics into something that's, um, you know, uh, practical and like implemented. So it gives them that kind of real world uh, use. One resource like that, that isn't as, I guess, connected, um, and, and probably doesn't bring together as many pieces. But something I've really loved is uh, Two Scoops of Django, which is like a... Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, You know, like an ebook. yeah, on how to use Django. And it's more... Django is a framework for building web applications, but this is more on the practicalities of actually building something on it. And you don't want to use every single tool. Like, you don't want to use everything that they offer you within Django. And the Django documentation is very technical, and it goes through how yep. how the framework works. Um, like think about think about when we we're getting started. If <clears throat> you know the <clears throat> you have a tutorial of like how to learn Django or I don't know, like how to learn Python. Like that's uh, things we probably both you know took, and you said you just did. But um, if there's one, it's like okay, here's a tutorial where you know you're going to uh, be able to have a web application. It's up and running on, you know, your own server and going to show you how to tweak around with it so you can create your own thing, right? It's like, yeah. oh, that sounds kind of cool, right? Because I think you can, you learn by like tinkering a lot, right? So like, oh, let Definitely. me change this around here. And like, I'm not going to call this post. I'm going to call this, you know, project and like, oh, yeah. great. Now, now I'm getting somewhere. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I think for two reasons. One, something I've seen a lot with indie hacking and um, a lot of these projects is you want to find, and basically any product out there, is you want to find people who are willing to pay. And they're usually willing to pay because the product itself is going to help them make money. Like if yeah. it's just kind of for leisure, um, it's a harder business to get into. And that's why... B2B is so successful, right? Like companies write huge checks to just pay for things because they need th they need products to make money. So if you have someone who wants to build a product, they want to do it because they want to have their own indie hacking business and they want to be able to live passively or something. And yeah. one thing I've thought about a lot is, um, is in a similar vein, but I find that there's a need for completely non-technical individuals, especially product manager types at university uh, at, that might come out of a MBA um, and they go to a tech company or they're these days, you know, most companies have some tech involved and they can't even walk into the conversation about the tech and they struggle a lot to, to work with the engineers. And I've personally, this has been like, you know, I haven't become an engineer day to day full-time really until two years ago but the six years before that i was talking about certain tech all the time like all day and my understanding of how a server works of what json is of what an api is even though i wasn't writing these api calls into the tech it was still valuable and oftentimes the jump is like okay do you want to build something do you want to learn Python. I hear from so many people like, I feel like I should know more about tech. I think I'll learn Python. And it's like, I don't know if you are fully, you know, I don't know if you're about to go down that whole route. Like this is a long journey yeah. if you want to start writing Python in your day job. Um, yeah. So that's just something I've been thinking about. So when you say like a, uh, a 
info product. Um, are you thinking like an ebook? Is it is it you know, a big um, landing page that really sells me on it? Do you have videos <laughs> that go along with this? Yeah, I don't. I don't. I, I just this idea. I'm I'm in kind of the brainstorming phase right yeah. now. I, I I think what it what it looks like at at this point in time is a a um some sort of uh, e ebook PDF type thing as well as like a um code that they get along with it that gets them kind of up and up and running where they can have like their own, you know, uh, web application that they can deploy, you know, to their own, you know, account on, you know, some service. Um, so kind of the combination of the two, eventually maybe video tutorials, but, you know, going to start small, like sit down, maybe crank out a book over the course of like a week or two, and then uh, maybe do the code along with it. So, yeah. Okay. Final question. Um, uh oh. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the you mentioned at the beginning, maybe you do want to get to a point of passive income, and <clears throat> what's the what's stopping it? Like, what does it look like right now? Between knowing what you know about indie hacking, this idea maybe you have, and um, and a year from now or two years from now being at that point, like, um, and what is that point? You know, where, where, at what point does it become, what, what is that, what does that dream look like? And then how, how, how do you get there from here? You know, just speaking on a Sunday, talking about this, not being, um, being realistic about like what, what causes the difficulty here? Cause I, just want the advice myself. Like, how do I do it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it, it's really for me and probably for you and most people out there, it's really just the commitment, right? So like, okay, I laid out an idea right here. You know, there's no risk that people don't want this, right? Like there's already hundreds of companies that are catered to helping people learn how to code, right? So like, okay, that that's you know, don't have to worry about that. So are you willing to commit and stick with it, you know, long enough and keep pushing long enough, you know, to see it through, right? And that's where I think most people give up. Like you're, and me too, right? Like, okay, I know I can get the book done. I know I can, you know, generate that code, but am I going to be willing to, you know, sit through every day for, you know, four months and responding to people's questions on Reddit, on indie hackers, on Facebook groups that are asking coding questions and, you know, having like links back to whatever my site is so I can build up some, you know, large email list or, you know, links back to, you know, get this thing off the ground. That's the question, right? Like that's, that's a grind, you know, that that's something that's maybe not going to be exciting all the time, but you just have to keep doing it. Like if you want, results with anything. It's just consistently and con consistency and, uh, you know, sticking to it and continuing to do it. So, you know, that, that's, that's the, the big question. Yeah. It's wild how seeing a lot of these projects, it becomes this pattern of that consistency and the grind. And you're probably not going to have the perfect product right away. So you might have to make tweaks on the product itself and you have to do the marketing aspects and things that are outside your comfort zone. But if you do that, there are so many stories on indie hackers and elsewhere of how this is possible and this situation that you can get to. Um, cool, man. But I, I, I also think, you know, just to expand on this, and I think you mentioned, I heard in your, one of your two podcasts from this season so far is, uh, a lot of it's just about the journey too, right? So like, you know, have fun while you're doing it. Like I built this note do thing app because it was fun. And, you know, I, yeah, I'll try to get it out there. And if it works, it works. But, you know, I'm not going to be too hard on myself if it doesn't, because I'm always going to be like trying to do something on the side or always try to indie hack. And I, I enjoy doing that. It, it 
it doesn't it doesn't have to be a failure if you know you don't actually have this amount to anything you know if you're having fun doing it and learning along the way i think that's that's okay too yeah i totally agree i have changed my mindset on the podcast a little bit to allow for that more and I never had this view of turning this into something to make money. And I've gotten asked by some people, have you tried to monetize it? And I, that was never even the point, but there was a, I was critical of myself about how certain things sounded. How was, um, how was I asking questions? Did I have good people on? So I was putting a ton of time into trying to get the right people on and it cast a kind of dark cloud over the project where I didn't, I wasn't that excited all the time. Um, why, why is, why is this guy yelling at all, yeah. at all his visitors? He seems pretty upset. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> why do you keep screaming at your, at your, the people who are coming on your show? Um, yeah, but I, it just gets so much more enjoyable if you appreciate that, like, okay, it's going to take time. And, consistency is the one thing that really matters because that's how you can just ensure that you're going to learn each step of the way. But the, um, yeah, it just becomes so easy to look at some other thing and have the newness of it become, become fun. I think that's really hard to, that's a real struggle for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, it certainly is. Um, you got to find new new, and, new then, checkpoints, right? That are like enjoyable with each step. Because if you're going into the marketing side after building the initial book and the initial code that you're going to deliver to people, it's nice to have that first piece of code that works. And you're like, oh, this really works. Sweet. That was a lot of fun. And then you want to kind of yeah. do it again. But your your product doesn't need another one of those. Like you got, you got it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. We'll let's check back in in a year. We'll have part two of that. All right. Well, as a applicant for the new podcast host position, which may itself become your uh, passive income stream, though it will be requiring some active podcasting, um, we may hear back before a year. And I know there's a True. lot more to Kyle Connors than just the indie hacking side of his life, but. I'm glad we got to talk about this. I know we've had like enough slack and late night conversations about it to probably produce a whole podcast show, but they kind of already do that at Indie yeah. Hackers. So yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk soon. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Settle the Far. All those groovy tunes you're hearing come from Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates. Find them on Spotify where you can find Settle the Far. Give it a rating. That'll help. Share it with some friends. That'll help even more. The more people listening, the better episodes I'm going to make. Till next time, stay rad.